Welcome to the Business Trendsetter Podcast, where we talk about trends and how to grow your business. My name is Manny Charan. And I'm Adam Hartung. We are Spark Partners. We're here every week to deliver to you lots of information as it pertains to how to grow your business by really understanding trends. Now, trends are one of these things that uh, at the very surface level seem to be uh, black and white, but as you start to go deeper and deeper, there's lots of shades of gray and there's a whole kaleidoscope of colors of, of, uh, of uh, nuances. But nonetheless, there are some pretty big tenants that you, that, uh, you should follow if you really want to grow your business. And so, Adam, today, I really want to talk about some um, things that we've mentioned in the past. And we were doing this three years ago when no one else was. And that is talking about what is happening in China. Now, of course, the United States and China have a very interesting relationship uh, and have had that for since really since Nixon opened up the, the door there uh, 40 years ago, 40 plus years ago. But I figured, you know, this is a good conversation because there's some things happening in the next 20 to 30 years that most business owners today may not have an idea of what's happening with China. So let's kick this off today, Adam, with that topic and uh, uh, really discuss how following trends and understanding trends is really the way to go to grow your business. <laughs> when I was a young boy, they would, uh, if somebody was having, you know, a, an argument, they'd bring up a point and they'd say, well, you know, the, this rock over here is red and blah. And, and uh, the other person might counter it with, well, what does that have to do with the price of tea in China? And the, the point that they were trying to make was that you were trying to, one person was trying to make an issue out of something that they didn't think was relevant or had nothing to do with whatever the topic was at hand. Yeah, I have, I have heard that uh, rather ancient yeah. saying. And so, you know, one of the things that I feel like is frequently when we talk about China, people kind of zone out, like, what the heck does that have to do with my business? And the reality, in reality, it has a lot. It's kind of like the stock market. You don't have to be a big investor in the stock market to realize that the moves of the stock market make a difference. It, it affects how much money is available. It affects your ability, you know, how much money your customers have to spend. Um, it, it, you know, watching the stock market is important. When stock market goes down, we tend to run into a recession. Business is bad. It's difficult. It's hard. When stock market is going up, people are flush with cash. Good things can happen. Well, for the last 40 years, uh, we have been doing a great job of taking advantage of an enormous society of people in China. We said, oh, look, you know, if we want a, a, a desk, it, you know, we could have the lumber cut down in Georgia, put on a boat uh, and it's sent to China where they would mill it into usable wood and make the desk out of it and then send the desk back to the United States. Because there were so many people in China and there was uh, the, the industry was uh, the domestic market was so small that they were happy to be an export oriented country. And so we started uh, back, you know, in the 1980s in particular, we started using China as the manufacturing hub of a lot of what happened in America. And so then, well, we'll be gone. American manufacturing is getting killed by outsourcing. You know, you've heard all this. And that was yeah. China, right? Well, now one of the things we know is that China is not going to be able to do what it's been doing it's because no. it doesn't have the people. Uh, as you said, years ago, we started talking about demographics when I brought up the Chinese demographic problem, which is that it's very much an aging population. So you had Chairman Mao, who had the Great Purge in the early 1900s, reduced the size of the population, caused huge poverty in China when, when he was replaced. And they came in with a form of, of, a, of a 
form of democracy anyway, um, and opened up their economy, they were the great benefactors of us taking advantage of the, that poverty by sending these jobs over to China. But the, but during Chairman Mao, they had this one child policy. And people don't realize that that existed all the way into 1966, meaning you were only supposed to have one child. And if you had more than one child, you paid penalties in China and there were tax costs and you were, uh, you were socially ostracized. And so people only had one child. Right. And that went all the way up to 1966. Now, what happened then, if you could only have one child, and this is a horrible thing, but people would often um, infanticide or kill yeah. baby girls because they said, well, if I can only have one child, then I want it to be a boy. Uh, because, again, whether society was structured and what they thought about how income could be made. And if there's only going to be one child to take care of us when we get old, then I want it to be a boy. So they only not only ended up with a reduction, you know, a problem with their population growth, but they ended up with it heavily weighted towards men and not enough women. So that even if you did away with the one child policy, which they did in 66, there's not enough women for them to have, you know, children to get the population back on track again. Now, finally, this year, we see data is made public from China. And based on 2021, the, it says that the population of China declined, that there were more people, um, uh, uh, the, um, that there were not enough babies to take care of the number of people that died. And so uh, they, as a result, the population is, um, is shrinking. And they're saying, oh, right. my and gosh, what's this mean? And let's talk about why, why this is so critically important for uh, Western, actually, and global business owners to know why it matters that the economy or their population is shrinking. That's because the things that we're looking at while we watch and listen to this podcast, a lot of them were made in China. Everything from computer chips to wire, electrical wire, to um, uh, computers themselves, phones, uh, printing of books, uh, pieces of furniture, parts of your car, parts of bicycles, all bicycles, the whole bicycle. I mean, just looking around you, the number of things that you'll see that were either wholly manufactured or partially manufactured in China is unmistakable. And we've been ignoring it. We're not even paying a whole lot of attention to it. And now, you know, okay, the politicians say we have defense concerns because they're making all the chips and we need to bring that back. And kind of like, well, okay, I'm not in the defense business. And, oh, that's somebody else's worry. You know, what does that have to do with price of tea in China? Forget about that, right? And people have been just ignoring this. Well, the reality is that they're not going to have the people demand the factories to no. have, you know, to be able to continue to produce the goods at the rate and pricing to which we were accustomed. We were used to like, oh, we get all these goods. So they're very inexpensive. Again, if I wind the clock back, you know, even in the 1960s, for example, let's talk about tools. I had a brother-in-law who was a, a block mason. You know, I come from a farm family. Well, you know, we really, really, really were taught about taking care of our tools. You know, when you got done at the end of the day, you cleaned your tools up, you oiled your tools up, get them ready for the next day. And so, you know, a good tool will last you a lifetime. I watch people work today, and it's very different. They'll go stick a shovel, and, you know, at day ends, they stick the shovel in the ground, they walk away. and don't even clean the shovel. I'm kind of like, what? It seems crazy. Same way with a lot of their tools. But the reason is because the idea, hey, I'll use that shovel for four, six months. If it rusts all up, I throw it away and get another one. A shovel costs six bucks. You know, so a shovel in 1960 probably cost about 20 bucks. And now even adjusted for inflation, the, 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 a new one's like seven or eight bucks. And so as a result, what happens is relatively to incomes, relative to cost, the cost of a shovel is lower. So we got used to throwing stuff away. Throw away things. You know, we don't need to worry about it. Oh, I don't like the color of that trash can. Throw it away and get a brand new trash can. 
you know, um, whatever. We, we just got used to being a disposable economy, and that's going to have to change because, again, you don't have enough people. And so it becomes a real threat because now China's going to start to kind of squeeze in on itself. We've got all these old people. They don't have children to take care of them. There's not enough children, especially those men that were never married, that never had children. They're now aging. They're going to probably live in China that people have every reason to think they'll live into their 80s. Nobody, there's not going to be a sufficient economy to continue to take care of them. So you end up with leadership in China now having to worry about whether or not there'll be revolt and whether or not there'll be riots in the street. Will there people be able to get their pensions? Will there be plenty of food for people to eat as this demographic problem takes over? Yeah. So, so we can expect unrest in China. And all of that does come back to us in the United States because, you know, unrest often leads to political instability. And, you know, China has been building military bases in the South China Sea. They could decide, well, the way to solve our economic problem is to attack Japan. A lot of people think that's a viable option for them. A second viable option is they could attack Taiwan. If China decides, okay, we got political unrest, we don't have enough people, we got to figure out a way to be to grow again. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to try to annex Taiwan or I'm going to try to annex Japan, oh, we're going to have a war that's going to be even bigger than the war that we have right now in, in Russia and the Ukraine. And it would almost certainly drag the United States into 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 using our own planes, and our own ships and our own guns. So that's a very real possibility. Yeah. And, and we can't ignore that. And you got to start saying, well, where am I going to source my things? If you're in business, if you've been selling clothing and you're used to selling clothing, you know, your wholesale cost of the of the sweatshirt's 10 bucks. I started at 50 and I just keep discounting the price until eventually I'll clear it out at 11 or 12 dollars. You, you're very unlikely to be able to do that in 10 years. In 10 yeah. years, the cost of these things are going to go up and you're going to have to charge more for them. And you're not going to be able to just clear out inventory every season, you know, dispose of it that way because it's going to cost more. Right. Um, and I think it's important that people realize it's not just the, you know, if you have a business where you're reselling, but just like you said at the beginning of your conversation, everything we use, the phone around us, this microphone that I'm using, this equipment that we're using, I mean, it's just everything's made, a lot of things are made in China. So if you just got to be aware that that's all going to change. Now, let me ask this question, Adam, let's get your thoughts on how fast do you think this is going to happen? I think it's going to have an enormous impact in three to five years. Um, because it, the problem is going to escalate. We've been watching demographics are one of the most easy to predict trends out there. We've been watching this come in. The odds are very good that the problem hit China five, six years ago. Okay. And that's one of the reasons that they, you know, went into this lockdown probably and, and, and went after COVID in a different way was just trying to preserve the young population. And so they, they went into lockdown to try to keep anybody from getting COVID. So the odds are very, very good that they had a lot more deaths than they reported. Odds are very good the population started shrinking four or five years ago and it's shrinking at an accelerating rate. That's the way trends work. And so as that means that within three to five years, it could be a very serious shortage. So we've seen today the big corporations, the apples of the world, the Ford Motor Companies of the world are saying, hey, I got to source more of this product domestically. I got to find alternative sources. And they're already making those actions. So I would say the same thing for somebody who's a small business. You know, if, if you've got a chain of brake shops out there, you should anticipate these changes that are coming at you, including the cost of materials. You know, right now you go to change somebody's brakes and maybe the cost of the materials is $100 and you could charge $700 for labor. Well, if the cost of those materials goes to $300, can you still charge $700 labor? That's now instead of an $800 bill, $1,000 bill, 
how many customers are you going to lose when that happens? And how much pressure is I going to put on you at the point of sale where customer says, hey, the last break job I got was 800. Why is it now 1,000? That's inflation. We all hate inflation. Give me a break. Cut it. Well, now you're looking at, am I going to have to cut my labor costs? And so see where it all heads. Once, once yeah. it starts falling down, once it starts going backwards, it doesn't want to stop. And it's going to it'll create these alternate, these, these second order problems that will happen. We've got a problem in, in, in Germany, but Germany has been getting around that problem with high levels of integration. But across Europe, we're seeing they're just starting to get close to this problem as well across Europe. You know, France last week had a rebellion on their hands because one of the leading politicians said he wanted to raise the minimum retirement age from 62 to 64. Okay, here in the United States, most of us are going to have to work to 70, 72, 74 in order to, to be able to live out our pensions. There in France, they're trying, people are rebelling at the thought of going to work past age 62. Well, what are we seeing? We're seeing people retiring. France doesn't have that high level of immigration like Germany. So now what happens is they're going to fall into the same problem China is. Where are you going to get the money to take care of the people, right? Yeah. Any cost of goods are going to start to go up. And we got the problem in the U.S. We got the problem in spades in Japan. Japan's the worst of them all. Yes, we now have the Japan problem in Italy, of course. Yeah. So the one place where we see that there's a high level of, of uh, baby growth <laughs> is India. And India's population has been growing considerably for a number of years. And if you look around, I know, I mean, it should be apparent to people. Uh, when uh, when I was, again, a young boy, if I didn't want to eat all my meal, then somebody older at the table would say, there's people starving in India, eat your dinner, right? Meaning that somehow, you know, I should be so thankful for this food, I should eat it even if I'm not hungry. Um, and I should use as my barometer that all these starving people in India that didn't have enough food. Well, you know what, that population is more than quadrupled across those years. And uh, there are still some poor people in India. I don't want to belittle that. But there are a lot of very, very well-to-do Indians. And whereas when I grew up, uh, quite honestly, I didn't ever meet a person from India until I was in graduate school. Nowadays, you see people from India all over America, right? And that's because the, uh, the, 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 the progeny of these families are making their way around the world. Mm -hmm. And so it's going to become you know, inevitable that other countries are going to need them. And we already see that in the Middle East, where there's a lot of wealth, uh, people don't really want to work. And so consequently, many, many Indians are in Abu Dhabi, Saudi Arabia, working in those countries. Same is true in Hong Kong. You see people from India moving in there. And so the, the odds that, you know, to keep our cost of living low will mean there will be more immigration and many of those will be from India. Right. And that will help us to get our you know, the United States help keep our cost of living low. So, again, looking at these demographic factors, we can start to plan on it. And it gets to public policy, which would be, do you still keep your borders closed? Right. Right now we have terrible policy. We don't know how to separate refugees from people who just want to come economic People are coming as economic refugees. And then there's people that are saying that, hey, if I don't get in there into your country, then I'll be killed. We, we don't know how to separate those two. So we're trying yeah. to shut there's the border a, down. The immigration thing, that's a whole, that's a yeah. whole thing. On it's a nightmare. But the reality is, again, for 10 years, I've been saying this, you've been with me, saying, look, you cannot continue to grow the American economy if you don't increase the number of immigrants. Right. And, you know, I pointed out that one of the best things many of our manufacturing uh, oriented states, California, Michigan, Wisconsin, Ohio, they would be well served today to, to go rent 747s and start going to Poland and other countries near Ukraine and picking up plane loads of those people and flying them back to the United States, giving them a warm house and giving them a job because we de desperately need the workers. 
You know, we're sitting here looking at a situation where we don't have enough supply. So prices are going up. That's causing inflation. That's got everybody tripped out. And in the process, then the Federal Reserve goes and raises interest rates. Why? So they can quelch demand. They want us to quit buying stuff because there's not enough supply. So the whole supply chains that broke down in the in the COVID, we can't get them back up and running because we don't have enough people. So we need to get these people, whether they're from India or the Ukraine or wherever, we need them. So what this so one factor, you know, the price of tea in China, in this case, the number of people in China, the babies in China, the demographic problem, are going to have an enormous impact on things like immigration policy in the United States, cost of goods in the United States, our ability to be an import country versus an export country. We'll have to export more in order to get the the uh, keep the dollar strong so that we can continue to be the center of the world economy. All of these things are going to impact everybody right down to the guy running a Dairy Queen. And what's his cost of ice cream? What's his cost right. of cones and what's his cost of paper plates for the burger for the hamburgers that he's going to sell? Right. Right. And so can you do anything about it? These are factors these trends. No, you can't alter the trend, but you can plan for the trend. And in planning for the trend, you can make good decisions. So, you know, one that I mentioned to you earlier today, uh, Manny, was that the state of Wyoming introduced into their legislature a bill to ban the sale of electric vehicles. And right. the reason they did that, they were quite clear about it, was that they want to protect the oil, gas, and coal industry in Wyoming. It's not a highly populous state. Um, it, it, it's very rural, and they do depend heavily on petro uh, dollars. And so consequently, they want to keep selling oil, gas, and coal. And so they're trying to buck the trend towards electric vehicles. That's not going to work. You know, it's just not going to, you're not going to stop it in the United States and there's not enough vehicle sales in Wyoming to make any difference. You're just going to make it harder on the people in Wyoming to be able to move along with the trend. What will that do? It'll discourage people from moving there. Somebody says, Hey, I've got an electric vehicle and I live in, I don't know, Kansas and I'd like to move west. Hey, let's go to those beautiful mountains in Wyoming. Well, wait a minute. I can't, there's no charging stations in Wyoming because you guys wow. banned the sale of electric vehicles. You know, I'm stuck. I'm not going to Wyoming. I want to go somewhere else and end up in Colorado or someplace, right? So you've got to look at these trends like demographics, sale of electric vehicles, and start saying, hey, my public policy will have to go down that direction. It's an absurdity to try to run your public policy in opposition to trends. And then as you can project what the public policy is going to be, it can help you as a business person decide where you ought to be putting your money. This is a good reminder to our listeners and viewers that, you know, Having your your own personal or or political opinions on things is just it's your own personal opinion. But when it comes to business, it, it just takes a, a different mindset. You've got to realize that, like we just said here, that with, with respect to trends, bucking a trend is a temporary thing. I mean, the whole idea of a trend is almost like an avalanche. It's going to come. It's going to get you. No matter what you do to stop it, it's just going to run you down. And um, you know, it's unfortunate that that that's happening in Wyoming. Um, I kind of know the sentiment of the folks that are thinking that way, but at the end of the day, it's not going to be good for anybody. Well, Manny, I think you mentioned earlier that um, EVs have their own environmental impact, their own environmental footprint, right? right? Yeah. Yeah. Now, one of the the, uh, arguments that people, the the counterpoints, you know, and and this is the the beauty of this, this podcast is we really explore and talk about some of these contrarian thoughts. Uh, the whole idea of the EV is that it's, quote-unquote, better for the environment. <clears throat> and in some ways it is. 
But in other ways, the amount of nickel and the amount of rare earth um, metals and minerals that are required to make the batteries and the mining required and the mining trucks and <clears throat> the whole um, inter- energy supply chain doesn't always add up. At least uh, a good 10 years ago, when people were projecting the, the EV world, there was one report that a, uh, an EV had a bigger carbon footprint at the time than a, a Hummer. If you remember those Hummers, the big uh, GM oh, yeah. Hummers, only because of the amount of lithium required inside of those batteries and the amount of mining, the strip mining, these just giant uh, you know, open pit mines, uh, especially in, in third world countries like Chile and and even in China, for that matter, um, that it would b- basically negate the whole idea of the green part of the EV side. Yeah. But so what? What is that? That's because what when we talk about good for the environment, most of the time your mind is focused on one factor, and that's carbon and the carbon footprint, the carbon footprint going into the air, which is related to climate change. Because everybody's talking about, well, it's colder than usual, it's hotter than usual, it's wetter than usual, it's drier than usual, all this climate change. And so that's the factor they talk about. That's just one factor, though. And you can get caught up in that one factor and ignore the other factors. As you said, you know, what's it cost us and how does it hurt us whenever right. we're out there, uh, you know, mining for all this lithium? And, and then also, if you move into a uh, you know, model, if you look at the models in terms of how we produce electricity, we could quickly start selling more electric vehicles than we're sustainably making electricity. Right. And so consequently, then you what you start saying, well, how are we going to make that electricity? And you get to the point where Oliver Stone releases a movie at Davos, Switzerland, of all things, which is pro nuclear power. Right. So here's this movie maker saying, well, we got to go nuclear if we want to save the planet because we need to go to electricity and we need the only way we get it is with nuclear power. So yeah. um, it, it trends the are something you have to pay attention to because as they bump into each other, they create opportunities and they can create problems. I would say today, you know, if you have an opportunity to build on the sale of EVs, you should be going for it, right? You don't want to be open gas stations today. Right. Right? That's not a great idea. But charging stations, yes. Um, I don't think you want to be opening brake and muffler shops today. But if you could open up uh, shops that would be doing sensor replacement, battery replacements, uh, software upgrades and replacements in EV vehicles, that might be a good idea, right? That's what we're trying to head people towards thinking is where are you going to put your money and where are you going to try to target is your, your growth should be go where the customers are going. Look where they're likely to be headed and get out there in front of that. And then don't let your bias kind of take you over. I got caught up in one of these. Um, I saw that there was in the news, there was this thing about outlying um, natural gas powered stoves in your house, right? So the burners on the stove that you're going to operate, you know, when somebody was proposing a federal law that would make that illegal. And in California, they're looking at a state law that would make it illegal, at least a new construction to put in anything other than an electric stove. And and they're talking about also a law that would say if you had to replace your stove, you could only buy an electric stove. And I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, oh, this is Crazy. This is insane. It's, it's so, why would you want to go down that road? It sounds, it seems like a, a major farce. But then I realized, I, you know, I had to go get some data. And when I got the data and started looking at it, I realized that natural gas stoves are actually a minority. They're a pretty significant minority, to be honest. You know, I mean, like they're not even close to 40% of stoves being uh, gas powered. It's, you know, you've got restaurants typically use stoves, commercial operations use stoves, but there's only a handful of states in the entire United States where there are more gas stoves than there are electrics. As it happens, 
of the five biggest states that utilize gas stoves, I've lived in three, right? So here I am biased because I would walk into my house and everybody, everybody I knew had a gas stove. But actually, that was that was a wrong assumption. If I went to you know 45 states, and there are some states that are almost exclusively electric stoves. And there's a lot of places where apartment buildings are, are mandated that they be electric stoves so that there's less of a fire hazard. So I started realizing that, in fact, somebody could pass that law and and 85 out of 100 people in America wouldn't even be affected. Wouldn't even know that it was a law. Like, like okay, so you passed a law, big deal. I got an electric stove in my house or my apartment, you know, and, and that would be the end of it. So yeah. you got to, you know, I had to kind of look at that and say, wow, you know, that could easily happen. Even though I don't think it would add much to the economy and improve the economy, I'm sorry, the ecology environment. I don't think it would help improve the environment. It could be a step that a politician would want to take to demonstrate a commitment to the environment, and they could do it. Like I said, 85 out of 100 people wouldn't care. That's likely to happen. So you start saying, "Well, wow, you know, how much am I investing in, you know, gas furnaces and gas stoves? And if, if I'm putting a lot of money into that, buying new ones for a house or building a new house and putting them in, am I going to be at risk that I run all these gas lines, put it in, and then I can't replace it, and I end up having to replace the gas lines with, you know, higher powered electrics, 220 volt lines in, into my rooms, you know, and then." You know, am I going to have to change my pots and pans? You know, think about it. That's all I'm trying to say is that you better think about these trends and know what the data it looks like before you make your investments. I think one of the things uh, I, I'm just going to put this out there. You know, we had a really good, successful um, event last year called uh, Growth Takes Grit. One of the thoughts that uh, I've been having here, Adam, and we'll, we'll kind of chatter over here all, uh, on the air is the idea of having another uh, event maybe in a month or so where we ask business owners and, and people that are looking at where to take their business uh, and we can do a quick uh, basically dissemination and analysis of how susceptible and to, to um, demise or, or, or actually success they are based on existing trends. You know, we can talk to people that are running a software company. We can talk to people that are running uh, you know, like a, a car dealership. We can talk to people, whoever, and we'll elicit folks and we'll reach out to folks and have a kind of a rapid fire uh, event. I think that would be beneficial. What do you think? Yeah, yeah, it would. You know, uh, let's take let's take the. I always like to look at pop culture and see kind of where pop culture is going. And uh, there's a, a television program called Bob Hart's Abishola about a couple. Right. And he uh, was selling socks. He's had a family business manufacturing and selling socks. And so he uh, ran into a little bit of a shortage problem and he's, and he's in Detroit and he decides to buy a building. He's going to start making his own socks. Now, look at that, because in a pop culture sense, what we're starting to see is in reinvesting in manufacturing can make sense. If people have business problems, maybe you should move further down supply chain. That was normal. If you looked at the history of America all the way up into 1980, it was normal if you're growing your business. You know, you want to sell more cars and go out and start you know, making steel and you know, make all the components to go into it. It was really in the 70s, 80s, when we started converting that out, getting it down to components, outsourcing all these components to different people, bringing them back together, doing some final assembly, right? But that's the kind of investment I think people need to be thinking about. Are you going to be able to go out and get these things that you need, buying them, or do you need to go ahead and make them yourselves? And when it starts showing up in popular literature or pop culture, television, movies, Netflix movies, those kinds of things, then you start realizing, hey, this is pretty real. 
It's pretty real because some people that are writing stories are seeing it enough and people watching it are identifying with the issue enough that it keeps it in the news. It keeps it real. But what amazes me is how often somebody will watch that and not think about how it applies to their own business. Not sit there and say, oh, okay, what are you selling? Are you in the business where, like this guy, Bob, you should be now thinking about making your own socks instead of thinking that you're always going to be able to buy the socks from some foreign country, right? That kind of of an analysis. And I think we can do that for a lot of people, help them think through where where are your customers' pain points, what are you doing to address those pain points, and could you do more? If you can address your customers' pain points better, you will grow. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, those customer uh, pain points are, are not always a, uh, a static thing. I mean, oftentimes they're, they're shifting around. I mean, I, I've talked to a couple uh, digital nomads that have been doing it for a while now. And uh, there's a certain sense of almost like they're, they want to find a home base. Yeah. Um, you know, so for instance, Tucson, uh, about two years ago, they put a lot of advertisement out. To, to attract these digital nomads, nomads to have a home here in Tucson. Um, and so, again, it goes back to the tax base, goes back to the kind of people we want to have here. And so that's a municipal problem. But ultimately, they were looking at the trends, uh, the people that were putting those ads out, and they were trying to find the right people. And they attracted a lot of people, much to the chagrin of the, the uh, homeowners, because it raised a lot of the uh, home rates, um, you know, quite a lot. So well, these years, are all things that are all wound together. It's pretty amazing. For years, like I said, we told people don't don't let your kids go into manufacturing. That's a dead end road. But get them into tech. They should go into tech. Maybe be engineers, be code writers, or even marketers in the tech field, right? And then now look at what's happening. We're seeing all the large tech companies are laying off. Between the start of the COVID um, and the end of COVID, that three years, nineteen to twenty-two, we had. Uh, Microsoft alone hired 70,000 people, 70, 70,000 people into their company. We saw an explosion of hiring at Apple, at Meta, at Google, you know, um, all these places, right, Alphabet. Now what's happening is they're saying, well, wait a minute, maybe we overhired. And it struck me that a lot of people getting laid off right now have never lived through serious layoffs. Like they, they've, they've got their job. There's always been demand for what they do and they can't imagine now what, what they're going what the other job they would have, but they're going to have to figure out how to apply those skills. We could see people in marketing having to go figure out how to go sell something besides technology, right? How to go sell manufactured goods, how to do B2B business sales and some of these products. So it affects everyone in that way in that these changes are, are, are happening and we're going to see more manufacturing. We're going to see more make our own products. And, and that should affect how we talk to young people about their careers, what kind of skills they need, and, and help people that are getting laid off understand that you can't just sit around on your tushka and do nothing. You have to go find another job. I remember when I graduated from university with my degree in, in mechanical engineering, one of the things that me and my friends would use as a uh, metric for where we wanted to work is how often they had a layoff. And <laughs> yeah. you're absolutely right. Th- that, I mean, that literally factored into our conversation. Well, should we go work for this aerospace company? Well, they have a lot of layoffs. And sh- or should we go work for this energy company? And those are conversations. Yeah. I don't think those conversations have been had in the, in the past 10 years. I mean, it's been right. a boom and there really hasn't had, uh, you know, th- there hasn't been the same amount of layoffs as there was when I graduated from, from university. 
And again, this all gets back to demographics. There's not enough young people out there for all the jobs, but that doesn't mean those young people get to do what they want to do. They're going to have to learn how, just like we had to learn how to shift ourselves, get into different kinds of work, acquire new skills, think of lifetime learning. That's what they're going to find out they have to do in order to be productive, you know, for 45, 50 years of their life before they're able to retire, right? And the best way to do that is, again, keep looking through the windshield, Go, you know, head forward. Don't look in the rear mirror when you're making these decisions. Look through the windshield. Where's the world headed? What are the trends? And then figure out what you're going to do to take advantage of them. Very well said, Adam. Thank you for your time this week. We'll be putting on information about this uh, webinar. Uh, likely will be sometime in uh, the middle of February. It'll be a great opportunity for our viewers and listeners to have some one-on-one uh, -on -one time with Adam and I. The one we had last time was very successful, and I hope you can all be uh, attuned to that. If you're not on, on our mailing list, please uh, reach out to myself or Adam at manniasparkpartners.com or adamasparkpartners.com. And we are definitely looking forward to uh, chatting with you in the next couple of uh, weeks here. Adam, one final thought before we log off. I just think everybody needs to be aware that demographics move at a snail's pace, but they make an enormous amount of difference. Very well said, Adam. With that, we'll talk to you later. We'll talk to you next week. Cheers.